0: Hi, it's Dean Miller, and welcome to episode 15 of Dean's List. I apologize if I'm not too consistent with this podcast, but life gets in the way. So if I get busy, please forgive me if I don't post every week, but I'm doing the best I can. This week, we're going to talk about the music business and the business of music. I think a lot of people get confused and think that music should just be fun, we should all just be having a good time, we're out there singing and playing with bands, and then one day we get discovered by some magical record person or label that's going to make us big stars. Well, I assure you, from being in this business all these years, that is not how it works, And I don't know who's curious about it or not, but today we're going to talk a little bit about the inner workings of the music business and some of the experiences I've had. I was born into the music business. I I like to joke that uh, I've been in the music business since before I was born because my dad was very successful in the music business long before I was even a thought. So uh, I was born into it. And I had a lot of uh, strange and wild experiences in my childhood. I've traveled all over and I've seen a lot of things and I've experienced a lot of things that many people don't get to. And I suppose for a while I took that for granted. I didn't know other people lived differently or or didn't didn't have this kind of a life. I just always thought everybody's dad made up songs and and sang all over the world, I guess, which made it doubly hard when I entered the music business and started from the ground up. I took a while to even get the courage to come to Nashville and try my hand at at making a living at music. I was living in Los Angeles uh, for a long time. Uh, I lived there till I was 25 years old. And I was acting, and I was going on auditions, and I was doing plays. I've done tons of plays, everything from Shakespeare to Moliere to Chekhov. And I like to say I'm probably the only classically trained actor who is now a country singer. I don't know many people who've taken that route, but I did. And I just took a long time to get the courage to step up behind my father's legacy and say, I want to try to write songs and do that as well. I knew he was a genius. I knew he had an incredible life and career and an ability. And I, I doubted myself. And I didn't know if I could step behind that and really feel confident in in trying to sing and write songs. But there came a time in my mid-20s, I was singing in a band, and these guys were uh, all into country music like I was. We were living in Los Angeles. And as the band progressed, I think they got a little less serious about the music business, and I got more serious about it. And I just knew if I didn't try, I was going to always regret it. I knew if I didn't at least attempt to do something with my music and these songs I was writing, I would be very sad about it later on. And I would always wonder what might have happened. So when I was 25 years old, I loaded up my car and I took a friend of mine and we drove across the country. And I moved to Nashville in the early 90s. And it was a rude awakening when I got here because... I honestly thought I would come here and it would just be so easy, and I'd just go get a record deal and then i'd I'd be a star in two weeks and i mean i re- I really had a really naive approach to the whole thing. I actually made a trip to Nashville before I moved, and I just would hustle around. It was the time of cassette tapes, so that'll tell you a little bit about how old I am, but I would walk around with these pockets full of cassette tapes. And I would just hand them to anybody I would meet that I thought was in the music business, anybody I thought that that might help me. You know, to be honest, I got a lot of meetings. And to be truthful about it, a lot of those meetings happened because people were curious about my dad and what his son might be doing. So I would take these uh, cassettes and I'd have these meetings and I'd play these songs And people would be curious, but I really believe they would then sit back and say, well, he's okay, but he's no Roger Miller. And I think I realized early on I had to be twice as good as the average new guy if I was going to get any attention. So it made me work twice as hard. It made me get a real sense for the business side of music and, and not just the playing and writing of music. And I just really hustled. I was just on fire to make something happen in this music business. I would do all kinds of weird things. I would go to shows. I would uh introduce myself to people. Uh Very early on, I started realizing that in Nashville, they have these parties to celebrate number one songs and gold records and platinum records at the time. and And you would go up and down Music Row, which are the two streets in Nashville where most of the music businesses are, and at that time in the 90s, there was a lot of free flow and money and Garth Brooks was huge and they were just throwing these lavish parties and, and I think drunk on their own success. But I could drive down Music Row and you could look and you could see groups gathering or, or little party tents or um, usually around five o'clock when everybody was getting off work. And you knew or I knew that that was a number one party or somebody celebrating something. So I could go to that party and get free food. So not only was I hustling and networking, I was trying to find ways to eat for free because I was dirt poor and struggling uh, just to make ends meet when I got here. I think this is a good time to take a break for our regular feature called Shameless Plug. Shameless plug, shameless plug, I'm gonna make a shameless plug. Y'all wanna have a shameless plug, cause I'm gonna make a shameless plug. I just want to thank all of you who've been contacting me about my new album, 1965. I get a lot of DMs and messages through Facebook and Twitter about how you feel about the music, how it's affecting your lives. It really touches me, and I'm I'm really grateful for that. I've been sort of talking about the song River Road lately, and that's a song that means a lot to me. It's full of lyrics that I really worked very hard on and, and have a deeper meaning to me, and I hope you guys are enjoying that. A lot of people don't know how important it is to an artist to have a person add their song or album to their playlist. It helps grow the fan base, it helps people be aware, it helps Spotify and Apple Music know that people are catching on and they'll start to spread the word about your music. So. If you don't mind adding my songs to your playlists on those platforms, it really helps a lot. And I don't want to spend our time plugging my album too much. So I'm going to get back to the stories. But I just want to let you all know how grateful I am to those who are listening, streaming, and buying 1965. Thank you so much. I used to be pretty relentless about making sure I met what we call the gatekeepers. I would try to meet the people that I thought had the power to decide whether or not I could move forward, whether it be a record label executive or someone higher up in the music business that might give me a chance. And at that time in the '90s, it was much more likely that somebody might get a record deal or someone to invest in them just based on their talent. We now live in a time where people want to see that you've built an audience and there's some business going before they invest in you. So there aren't a lot of people signing new artists just early on just because they they sing well or they're 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 talented. That that's part of it, but they have to have some business going before a label's going to invest in them. But at that time, I was just focused on the deal. I thought if I got a record deal, it would change my whole life. And little did I know, that's really just one more starting line in this journey of music. And I wish I'd known then what I know now, which is, it's all about that journey. It's all about the work. It's all about the music. And the business part, you have to know and you have to work on it, but... um It's a two-way street. It's talent and ability mixed with the drive and ambition and perseverance to handle the business well. Uh, My dad used to say, if you're going to be in the music business, you have to have the skin of a rhinoceros and the heart of a poet. So most of the day I would spend hustling the music business and at night I would spend working the songwriters' rooms, the shows, the clubs, trying to meet every kind of person I could just to be out there and, and in the business. It was a lot of rejection, a lot of downtime. I was fortunate enough to sign a publishing deal early on when I got to Nashville, and a publishing deal is where you write songs for a company, and they pay you to write songs, but all that money gets recouped once your songs get recorded. So for a few years, I went from publisher to publisher writing songs and trying to get songs cut by other people. I had a little bit of success. I had some songs recorded by George Jones and Terry Clark and Trace Adkins and um, a lot of other people, Steve Holy, Hank the Hank Third. I don't know. I could go on and on. But um, during that time, I was really writing a lot, but I knew what I wanted to be was a performer. And that was challenging to try to get a record deal. I can tell you I got rejected a lot. But ultimately, I was doing a showcase, which in this town at that time, they would do showcases. You would go and do seven or eight songs, like a 30-minute show in a club. You'd bring your friends and as many people as you could get in there. And then record executives would come and watch that showcase and see if you kind of had what they were looking for or they thought you had potential and they would... uh sign you to a record deal. Maybe, maybe not. A lot of times not. There's a very interesting story. I actually had this showcase for Mercury Records. And there was a new A&R guy there. And he was a, a well-known guy in the business. And I did this showcase for them. They were interested in possibly signing me. Uh, I did the show. Uh, they came back later and said, we're going to pass. We don't, um, we don't want to sign you. Uh, but that head of A&R for that record label then signed himself as an artist to his own label that he was supposed to be finding other artists for. I've never heard of anything before or since like that, but that guy signed himself to a record deal. Unbelievable. But anyway, beyond that or going back, I did this showcase for Mercury and while they rejected me, there was a guy in the back From Liberty Records, who, which is a subsidiary of Capital Records. And he went back to the label and told them, I think you should think about signing this guy. And through a bunch of other circumstances and situations later, I ended up being signed to what's called a development deal. And a development deal is when the people at the record label are too scared to commit money and effort into you fully as an artist because they're afraid. So they sign you to a a period of time where they watch you, you record some songs, they groom you, so to speak. And during that time, they're seeing if a buzz builds about you. They're seeing if something seems like it's going to work. And if things work out, then they may or may not sign you to a full deal and there's a famous story in nashville about one of those uh, development deals taylor swift had a development deal on rca records and she recorded songs and she was there for a year doing all of this work and at the end of the year they said we just don't get it we don't see it we're going to let you go we don't believe you have potential so they dropped taylor swift from her development deal before ever making a record with her And I guess we all know what the end of that story ended up being. She went over to Big Machine Records and uh, I wonder whatever happened to Taylor Swift. Uh, No, I'm kidding. She became an enormous star and changed the whole music business. But anyway, my story didn't work exactly like that. But I had this development deal on Capitol Records. So over the course of three years, I started making these demos, songs, songs, uh, potential tracks for recording. I worked with a, a well-known producer at the time named Emery Gordy Jr., who was originally a member of the Wrecking Crew in Los Angeles, the, the band that made all the hits. And he was married to Patty Loveless and produced all of her records, which I loved. And I really had this great, incredible time working with Emery Gordy Jr. during that time. And I also worked with a guy named Brian Ahern, uh, Ahern, and uh, he he was a, a well-known producer, produced Emmylou Harris and, and a lot of that era of music. But I worked with a lot of different people. I don't think anybody really got what I was trying to do. Uh, no disrespect to them. But um, I just feel like I wasn't really connecting to any of the stuff we were really doing. And I don't know that it was catching on at the label. But a huge event happened that changed everything during my time on Capitol Records. And that is that um, Garth Brooks was becoming monstrously successful. And during the rise to his enormous success, he began to make some business decisions at the label some positive, some negative. But I'm going to save that story for the next episode because I've already rambled into my 15 minutes that I usually do for this show. So part two of my record business saga will be on episode 16 of Dean's List. I hope you've enjoyed this. This has been a breeze for me. The time has just flown by. But thank you for listening. And I hope to see you next time on Dean's List.